Okay, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 is what I want to address this morning as we open up. And it's this text where Jesus is articulating what we have come to know as the Beatitudes. And he makes this comment in verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this God stuff, righteousness, rightness, the power to do right, the power to put wrongs to right. And the very life and presence of God is all in this idea of righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this stuff because they will be filled. There will be a response. I was thinking about hunger. Hunger does a couple of things in us. One is it calls you to attend to some things that maybe you weren't attending to. Uh, I think a lot about food. But I think about it more when I get hungry. Right? So you may be doing something else and all of a sudden you get that tad going on in your, in your body and you go, hmm, I'm hungry. And so you start thinking about food when you weren't thinking about food. And so hunger causes us to sometimes think about things we weren't thinking about. My wife, Gail, uh, her mom just turned 90 this weekend, so she was up uh, at a, a, a big birthday bash yesterday. And uh, so she's been gone for a couple of days. The longer she's gone, the hungrier for Gail I get. I get gale hungry, so I'm talking to her on the phone, you know, and I'm looking forward to picking her up tonight, you know, because I, I get gale hungry. And, and so we can get hungry for people. And that kind of idea, we're to cultivate a hunger for God and a longing for his table and his presence and that sort of thing. Uh, I think hunger also makes you more open to what you were, more open to things than you were before. I mean, if you get really hungry, you'll eat stuff you would have never thought about eating. Right? If, you, if you're real picky, it's you're not that hungry. I have a couple of friends that did uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators. And this, if you know anything about Wycliffe Bible Translators, this is this group of people that are trained to go into parts of the world that are developing. And some of the places they land, tribes in which they encounter, have no written language. And so they have to enter the context, live amongst the people, make friends with them, learn their language, turn their language into a written form, teach them their own language in the written form because they can't read or write because no one's ever taught them. So they actually teach them to read or write, and then they translate at least one book of the Bible. So it's like a five to eight year process of getting out one book of the New Testament and getting with that little tribe of people who don't have any translation of the gospel. Uh, so that's kind of what they're committed to. And one of the things they tell them in training is, don't worry about food. Because when you get hungry enough, you'll eat anything. And one of their mottos is on that regard is, if you can beat it, you can eat it. <laughs> so getting hungry for God means that sometimes you're open to various ways of connecting with him that maybe you weren't before. And sometimes we have to reignite our hunger. That's why I like Lent. I don't really like it. I love it in a hateful way. It's a love-hate relationship because you're entering into times of fasting and who likes to do that? And you're entering into times of extra seeking and you're sort of pushing yourself into disciplines that seem a little odd and a little awkward, at least to your physicality and to your soul sometimes. But somehow when you move into those things, you're starting to, you start connecting with God in a hungry way that, that brings something to bear in your soul and you start being informed and formed these different kinds of practices, so you're not just formed by your to-do list. You're not just formed by your responsibilities today. You're not just formed by expectations of others. That somehow when you stop and you plug into some of these eternal ideas and disciplines, you start being formed by them. And the Didache, this is an ancient book um, that was written about 50 AD, the modern scholarship says now. And it was a book that one of the things they asked, it was just written among the people, and one of the things that they talk about in the Didache is to pray the Our Father, to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. And even just doing something as simple as that is a discipline. You know, get up in the morning and let that, just stop and say the Our Father. Or then somewhere in the middle of the day, stop and say the Our Father. It may seem rote, but I'm telling you, if you do that kind of thing and find little simple practices that are disciplines like that, they start informing your life more than your to-do list does. They start hitting you and directing you more than your concerns about other things do. Right? So it's this kind of idea, stirring up a hunger. Uh, sadly, most people wait until there's tragedy before they hunger for God. Those of you that are old enough to remember what happened on 9-11 or the aftermath of 9-11, you remember how churches were filled. Because people tend to, get, tend to be open to God more naturally when they have desperate situations that happen in their lives, un, unthinkable situations. Years ago, I was 
standing in the office of the first church I pastored in Wisconsin. And I heard these words in my heart. I really believe they were the Holy Spirit. I heard this, this idea, cultivate desperation inside you. Cultivate a hunger for God. Because don't wait to tr- for tragedy to cultivate that. Cultivate a, des- a desperation for God, and you will be blessed. It was a different way of saying those that hunger and thirst for righteousness will be blessed. That somehow you'll be prepared for the, whatever life throws at you. So I pray for hunger. And I pray for desperation. This, is, this really is why I think that, that we gather together and we open our hearts. We're sort of saying, God, make me more longing for you, which feeds that and causes that to grow. Um, now, I'm going to focus on something particular here about this business of encountering God that, that may sound a little strange to some of you. Um, because there, these are some things that that kind of come out of the root of the fact that there's that myself, speaking personally, and a number of you here, come out of a, a Pentecostal and charismatic tradition. And that's our heritage. And I want to talk a little bit about how what we're doing, particularly in this Lent expression that's coming up, why that's important to someone like me who would have thought of that as dead religion. Okay, uh, There's an Old Testament text about the people of Issachar. They're the people of Israel, but they were the sons of Issachar, this dude, uh, that, that, that has always resonated with me. And it's out of 1 Chronicles 12, and it's verse 32. It says, the men of Issachar, the people of Issachar, they were people who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. That always grabbed me. Because I always want to say, God, would you, would you help me understand what's going around, on around me and my culture and my life? And, and help me figure out what we should do as, as people of faith, how we're to respond to that. So show us what the times are saying and show us what to do. This is the issue of the prophetic, is what it's called. Historically, the church has always valued the prophetic. What the prophetic is, it's the now voice of God. It's what God is saying to us now, what God is emphasizing to us as a people now, because there's this belief that God is not silent, that he's speaking to us. Uh, There's a text in Hebrews 12 that captures this. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks, not just him who spoke, but see that you don't refuse him who speaks. Notice the present tense of it. If they did not escape who refused him, who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn from him who warns us from heaven? Otherwise, he's speaking from heaven. At that time, he's talking about actually when Moses was on the mountain. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken in us. That is created things. So that What cannot be shaken may remain. He's talking about the fact that God, when he speaks into our lives, he breaks away temporal things. And and we start becoming a people that are more oriented to the eternal than we are to our contingencies and the circumstances around us. That somehow when he speaks to us, it messes with us in a good way. And then the next verse says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, notice the present tense of it. We're receiving God's kingdom, and his kingdom is his influence. This is Jesus breaking into the world and pushing back stuff that's evil and putting to right the things that are wrong. So when his kingdom, we're receiving this kingdom that it it cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful and so worship our God acceptably with reverence and awe. Why? Because God is a consuming fire. In other words, what he's saying is, is that if you're really connecting with what God is saying, it will cause some things to be destroyed in you. And some things to be found in you. This is the prophetic thing. It's this sense that God is still speaking. And those of us that come from this Pentecostal or charismatic tradition, we understand the deep value of the fact that we want God to speak prophetically to us. We, we want him to lead us in the now. We believe that God speaks prophetically to us as individuals in our individual lives. That somehow he's directing us or he's helping us to discern things as we walk through life. That somehow we also believe that God uh, speaks prophetically to us within the local community of believers, like in sanctuary. God, what are you saying to us as a people? What do you want us to emphasize? What kind of season are we in? Uh, We also believe that God speaks prophetically 
within his, to his body, within a certain kind of cultural milieu, like the Western church. What is God saying to the Western church? Because we know that the, that the situations and the, the cultural milieu we live in in the West is a little different than the Latin American culture or the African culture, the Asian culture. And we know that because the situations are different, that God is articulating certain things to us that might be different than the Latin Americans, might be different than the Africans, and yet he's speaking things to them that's unique. And their impulses, particularly because we're in a modern world, where we get people from all of these continents together in rooms and say, what is God saying to you? And we listen and we're encouraged and challenged by one another as we hear what God is doing in the world. And there's also this sense that as we do listen to each other, that not only is God speaking to me individually within this local context, within our, uh, our cultural context, but also in the globe, that somehow God is doing something with the church in the 21st century in this particular generation that's critical. Because as we look back and track history, we see in the historical record that God seems to emphasize different things in different generations. You take the first generation, and we have the writings from the first generation, and you know what they were about. Jesus is coming back next weekend. And there's this constant influence. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Come on, go, go, go. Tell people he's coming, right? And uh, so you, that's the impulse of the whole first. Uh, when you, if Some people that just read the New Testament, that's why a lot of people, they're always saying, you know, when's he coming, when's he coming? Because that is the impulse of that first generation. What started happening was when the, the apostles were dying, and then those that knew the apostles were dying, the people looked around at each other and said, well, we know he's coming, but apparently it wasn't last weekend. And so they start saying, what must we do? They start saying, how are we going to organize ourselves? What are Christians? What, what do we believe? And they started coming up with issues of ecclesiology. In other words, how the church should be structured, how we should relate to one another. Issues of dogma. What are we saying about Jesus? What, who was he? How, how, does, how was God to be imagined? And they started articulating what took centuries to plow through. Things that were inferred in Scripture, but not explicitly stated in Scripture. And so what God was doing was helping the church to become who she was. And then as things trekked along, you know, you, you get to, to the centuries when the church started getting a little funky. And all of a sudden, guys like Martin Luther started standing up and saying, wait a minute. We are funky. We need to rethink. And, and all of a sudden, you have this impulse of preaching on grace and, and faith. And it needed was something that needed to be reformed. God was speaking that. Well, just in every generation as you look, there was these prophetic kinds of impulses. And that is the, the charismatic, the, the Pentecostal tradition. If you don't know much about it, it has this hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is the lens it looks through. It's like if you look at something with a binoculars, you look at something with the naked eye, it looks different. The way we look at the world from that tradition is God is speaking. God is saying something. And the angst that appears. The tension in the hearts of those in that tradition or coming out of that tradition is, are we listening? Are we catching what he's saying? Because we know the stories of people where God was moving and they didn't know he was. We read the story of Jesus standing over Jerusalem and he's weeping. And he's saying, how often would I have gathered you under my wing as a hen would her chicks. But she were unwilling. And he knows as he's crying, Jesus is crying. There's people, mothers taking care of babies and cooking food and making shoes and all this stuff is going on down there. They're completely oblivious to the fact that the king of kings, the creator of the universe, is crying over them. Completely oblivious to it. And so the, 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 in, out of that tradition of, of Pentecostalism and, and charismatic life, it's that sense, how horrid would it be that he's trying to move and we are oblivious to it. That's the tension. Truth is, I love the prophetic. And in my private life, I am always seeking God. What are you saying to me? What are you saying to sanctuary? What are you saying to the American church? What are you saying to your church in the world? How can we orient? Several years ago, there was a song that came out. I want to be where you are. I just want to be where you are. And I remember hearing that song and saying, no, that's it. If you want to have something that defines me, I don't have much ambition about being a big church guy or a big whatever. Uh, you know, I just keep plugging along. But my real heart is I just want to be where God is. I don't want to pretend. I don't like fake. I want to, I want to have a sense that I'm following him in my soul. And uh, this, is, this has always been my cry. It's like that Old Testament 
story about the Jews following the cloud and the fire. The cloud protected them from the heat of the day in the desert, and the fire kept them warm in the cold of the desert. And whenever the cloud moved, they hightailed and chased it. I have always wanted to be a cloud chaser. I just want to follow. I try to be sensitive. I, I remember when, when I first came to Christ, I, I wasn't so interested in, in a bunch of dogma, even though I think dogma is important, doctrine is important, the Bible is important. But that wasn't my focus. My focus was always, God, what are you doing? And I remember going to an old Pentecostal church and, and every service that we'd have, it, it wasn't much going on. The singing kind of sucked and the preaching was bad, you know. But uh, you know, it wasn't that great. It was kind of boring. And, uh, and, but then we'd break for the altar. We come to the front and man, that's where the cloud was. We go down there and I'm telling you, we'd have Sunday night services. The services only last for a half hour, 45 minutes. Don't get your hopes up. Um, but, <laughs> but then we'd move into the altar service and we'd be done by 7.30, quarter to seven. And we'd be down at the altar uh, for sometimes four hours. It'd be midnight. We'd be down there crying and praying for each other and singing worship songs over and over, these choruses over and over again. It was just like there was something powerful going on there. And it was just within a couple of years after doing that, I got involved with the Jesus people. And the Jesus people, was it became an organized something that was very organic. But they, they, they started roaming around these little troops of people and they'd preach on the streets and they would gather in their public assemblies. But their public assemblies weren't very organized. So a lot of times we'd just gather together and we'd talk and then we'd all hold hands and pray together. Even hundreds of us would be holding hands and praying. And then I remember one night when we were standing there, somebody just, we sang Alleluia, Alleluia, that whole chorus. And then somebody started going, Thank you, Lord. We just want to thank, like a free, free song, made up song. Thank you, Jesus, we worship you. And all of a sudden, everybody started singing this free song, this open song. How many of you have been in a service like that? You know what I'm talking about? Do it with me. So there's some people here who never heard this. But let's do it with me. Thank you, Lord, we worship you. Come on, get louder. I want to hear you a little bit more. We bless your name. We thank you, God. It's like that. I mean, I was in rooms, by the time that blossomed into the charismatic renewal, we would be with the Catholics and the Lutherans, and we'd be in some situations, one of them in particular, 15,000 people in a room doing that for 15 minutes. It was like, holy freaking cow, this is really cool. There was like a smack, slap your mama presence. And, and, and that, that kind of presence continued in the services of churches I was part of, where we would have strong worship and it's moments of silence, and sometimes we'd all be on the floor, weeping, powerful sense of God's, I'm here, thing. And then sometime around the late 80s, early 90s, something started to shift. I remember in my soul thinking, yeah, this, we've been doing this a long time, but in some ways we were victims of our experience. What we innocently stumbled into, we started trying to fabricate ourselves. And the, so the innocence was lost on some level. We kept trying to recapture old moments. And it started getting stale and flat. It wasn't bad. It was like it, wasn't, it, was, it was okay. And I just thought, we just need to do it harder. <laughs> Sing longer, maybe a little louder. Maybe God will come this time. Okay, everybody in tongues. Shalomalamala. There's <laughs> nothing wrong with that. I'm, not, I'm not, really not making fun of it because there were some moments. There were some beautiful moments of that. But, but honestly, I think we were working up a sweat more than seeing God. And it was around that time I remember I, <laughs> I was in, the, in a worship service and I, and I remember getting up and I had this sense Call everyone to pray together. Now, understand, as a Pentecostal, charismatic, we didn't do corporate praying, other than just people shouting it out, you know. Like, Hallelujah. Amen. Praise God. You can't do that at me. Shout at me. Thank the Lord. Amen. Glory. See, that's it, man. See, there's some Pentecostals among us. You, come on out, you closet Pentecostals. We, like, we thought God was moving when that stuff happened. But doing something together, where it wasn't just a, an impulse of my own sort of sense of personal relationship with the Lord that I'm in control of and feel inspired to do, 
And so I remember asking him, I said, you maybe haven't done this since you were a kid. But let's say they are father together. And as that whole congregation, a couple thousand, whatever it was, we prayed our father like we do here. After we got done, I sent something. (laughs) It's like if you've ever been outside and doing something in the yard and you hear in the bushes, and you go... It was like that. I remember thinking, what was that? I talked to some people afterwards. Did you feel that? Yeah. What was that? I found it curious. And then just a little later, I remember that we, um, uh, we were talking about this. And I thought, you know, most of us are used to doing church as individuals, right? Though we are standing together, it's still kind of private space in a lot of ways. We, uh, we want to sing songs that we personally like. We want to hear from preachers that we personally like. We want to go to churches where people that attend make us feel personally welcome and safe. And we want the spontaneity from our own heart. We're not used to someone. I mean, we'd rather say, praise the Lord, spontaneously, than someone in a more liturgical way saying, give thanks to the Lord. And the response is, it is good to give him thanks and praise. So let me say that. Give thanks to the Lord. Let's do it one more time. Give thanks to the Lord. See, we, we, when we do it together, it, for we Pentecostals and Charismatics, it's like, why do you got to just bind us up into that dead religion? Now, if I say, it's going to give thanks, when nobody told me to, that's the glory right there. Because the others organize this dead religion. See? It's not me prompted. And then I remember completely out of the blue, this shocked me. In the mid, it was late, actually late, late 90s, and I was taking part in this outreach where we took about 125 kids into an underprivileged area uh, where there was, uh, they were gutting this house, fixing it up, helping a poor family in a very, very practical way. And I remember arriving on the scene and walking around that apartment complex where they were doing this. And I, I sensed the presence of God that was not unlike the old altars or those moments when we would sing to the Lord. And I remember thinking to myself, my, my impulse inside was, what are you doing here, Lord? This isn't the right space. It surprised me. And I heard in my heart, I think it was the Holy Spirit. I heard in my heart, this is the new worship for this generation. That as they serve the underprivileged, and as they give themselves a service, it's like a worship to them. They're not going to get as much out of songs like you used to. And that freaked me out. Because I didn't understand it. And then we hit the 2000s and we decided to make sanctuary an experimental community. Aren't you glad? You, in my mind, are a petri dish. And we began resourcing more of the practices from the ancient church for a number of reasons. You know, from that Our Father experience, I thought there was something there. Let's go over and look in that bush, see what's going on, that kind of thing. But also from just our research and some of the stuff that was emerging in, in, in Christian thought about postmodern epistemology, kind of stuff, the ancient modern mix, stuff that we don't need to talk about. But it made me curious. It made us curious as people. And so we started that renewed focus on the table because it was a focus that was all through the ancient church. We thought, well, what did that mean? What could that mean for us? We started saying the creed. We started celebrating the church calendar, <laughs> you know, like Advent and Lent and Eastertide and Pentecost. We sensed something in it. We sensed a scratching in it. Nothing earth shattering, but just like something was going on that made us more curious, but did it, and, and, but it was costly. I mean, because we're talking about, you know, when we were doing that kind of stuff and a lot of people came from an evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal background, it was like they're going, what are you doing? Are you going crazy? And, I, and when, we, when we announced we were going to celebrate Lent, <laughs> I didn't call it that at first. I called it making room for God. It just sounds more charismatic, making room for God. But it was really my Trojan horse for Lent. And the minute they discovered, because you're not stupid, I wish you were stupid. I wish you would just let me think for you. But you actually think. 
<laughs> so when you figured out it was Lent, 20% of the community walked out. Ouch. But, but, but we became convinced that God was in this. I'll explain why in a moment why I think he's in it. I don't know for sure, but I think he's in it. This is why I'll tell you in a minute. But, but, but it was an awkward time, and, and, and we still see some deep resistance and awkwardness that we experience. And I think it's because we can't get our minds around how in the world God could ever use the past to get us into the future. I mean, after all, we are Americans. And Amer- you know, one thing that's true is our country is not oriented to the past. Right? I mean, we began by severing our bonds with the past. We no longer have a mother country. In fact, we are our own mother. The metaphor that America was young and on her own helped us to focus on the present and the future while almost entirely ignoring the past. In fact, we actually are a country that has come to believe that the past has a corrupting power. That's in our, that's in our culture. There's a, this sentiment is lucidly caught in the words of this guy, John O'Sullivan, and this is back in 1839. He was an influential political writer for the Democratic Party, and he wrote, watch it, quote, Americans, so this is just shortly after, you know, the, the country is born in what year? 1776, so this is 1839. This is a short time. So he writes this, quote, Americans have no interest in the scenes of antiquity, only as lessons of avoidance of nearly all their examples. The expansive future is our arena and for our history. We are entering on its untrodden space with the truths of God in our minds, beneficent objects in our hearts, and with a clear conscience unsullied by the past. We are a nation of human progress, and who will? What can, what, what can set limits to our onward march? Providence is with us, and no earthly power can. We point to the everlasting truth on the first page of our national declaration, and we proclaim to the millions of other lands that the gates of hell the powers of aristocracy and monarchy, that's talking about England and the past that we came from, shall not prevail against it, end quote. So we're this, we're this people that have this inborn prejudice against the past. And so here we are in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 2014, touting that at sanctuary, we believe that the path to the future is through the past. And people are staying away by the thousands. <laughs> But what are we going to do? I mean, I, I, my Pentecostal heritage tells me, obey God no matter who it separates you from or associates you with. But what's confusing to me is that every time I followed God in the past, every cloud I followed in the past has always led to more and bigger and better and powerful. It was always slap your mama. It was always amazing. It always gathered lots of fruit. And lots of people responded. That's every, every cloud I followed in my life was like that. This is the first time I followed a cloud that it seems like it's more a, a Gideon anointing. Remember Gideon? He says, come on, let's go for God. And 32,000 people show up. And God tells Gideon, too many. So Gideon preaches and 23,000 left. I, I preach and people leave, but not that many. He's down to 10,000. Okay, let's go, God. Against the Midianites with 10,000, we said 23,000. And that's a lot of tithe. No, he got too many. Let's do this. He does this and he ends up with 300 people. It's the ministry of diminishing. Is it possible to be prophetic and lose? Is it possible to be prophetic and get smaller? This is our challenge. It doesn't make sense to me. And then I ask God, why? Why? I mean, because I want to know, not like I have to know, but I am hungry to know. And a persistent little fella. And if God is not really speaking to me, I'm making it up. A why, right? I need to know why. Well, here's what I've stumbled into. Why, why would the Holy Spirit be talking about us resourcing what we believe to be old dead religion? Why? 
And I, I think, I really do believe that there are a number of reasons. But the one I wanted to, to point out mostly is this one. Faith is as corporate as it is private. We don't get that. We want everything to be private. And even when we come together, we just want us to privately experience stuff. And so we judge what's happening based on how it impacts me. In their book, Habits of the Heart, five sociologists, these are not religious writers, five sociologists make the landmark observation at what they believe is eating away at the cohesiveness of our culture. It's what they call, quote, expressive individualism. Individualism is good, but our brand is on steroids. Americans have created a culture that has elevated the individual choice and expression to such a level that we really don't have much shared space. There are no real commanding truths or, or values that tie us together. And the authors of this book, Habits of the Heart, write, quote, Though we continue to move to an ever greater validation of the sacredness of the individual person, our capacity to imagine a social fabric that would hold individuals together is vanishing. The sacredness of the individual is not balanced by any sense of the whole or concern for the common good. As I said, most of us are used to church as we like it. Our shared space is not an integrated space where we're dependent on one another. Where It's more like a storeroom of individually stacked solo cups. We do solo together. I think that maybe God is prophetically emphasizing things like liturgy and the Lord's table, and the corporate prayers, and the ancient creeds, because they're just not individualistic. They are corporate expressions. They create shared space. When we do liturgical things, our identity is altered. In liturgical space, we're neither male nor female. We're neither Greek nor Jew. We're neither old nor young. We're neither free nor slave, Republican or Democrat, gay or straight, doing well, struggling badly, greedy or giving, lovers or meanies, (laughs) weird or not so weird. It's, It's no longer about that. We're just seekers coming to God in shared space from all kinds of different backgrounds and all kinds of different levels with all kinds of different problems, we just come together. And what I feel doesn't really matter in that space and what I think doesn't really press on me in that space and what I want isn't even on the table because I'm stepping into us. So when we say a prayer like the Lord's Prayer, say it with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. When I say that, I I can personally push my heart into it, but I can't just go where I want to go because i got to stay with everybody else in the cadence of it. And some level, my, my, I'm tethered to you, and we're doing this together, and it's more like a common kind of space. It's this kind of moment where we experience an identity outside of our individual lives. It's this kind of moment that, you know, when Jesus went to Calvary, he lost his identity. He, the cross, he was rejected and betrayed, and God had abandoned him, forsook him. He was naked. He was nothing. He became sin. And when we come together in the name of Jesus, on some level, we're meeting him at the cross. We're taking up our cross and we're losing our own personal identity. We're no longer just defining ourselves as a man or as a woman or as a a Republican or a Democrat. We're not defining ourselves as a businessman or a worker. We, We find our identity in something higher than us. It's kind of a transcendent identity. Uh, that's not dependent on the circumstances or the facts about our individual lives. And, and sure, I'm not suggesting that our maleness and femaleness don't matter, because they do. And, and your political persuasions, they matter. They should. But they're not primary importance when we come into this space. 
The, the, the result, the supervening result is the loss of our identity in Christ and somehow we end up on the other end of that in unity with people we would have never chosen to be in unity with. The strange, the odd, the less than perfect, the better than we are, the less than we are. Who I am and who you are doesn't matter the moment we taste the body of Christ and participate in drinking his blood. Who I am and who you are doesn't matter when we're saying the creed because we're one in Christ at that moment. Who I am and who you are doesn't matter when we recite public prayers of repentance because in those moments, it's who we are together. I think the prophetic voice is trying to push us out of our individualistic view of faith into shared space because there's a kind of way that God is present in our midst that he's not present with us when we're by ourselves. He is present with us by ourselves when we're by ourselves, to be sure. But he is present with us when we're together in a way that's unlike that. That's why Jesus said, if two or three of you are gathered together, I'm there. I'm in your midst. What's he saying? That he's not there when there's just one of us? No, he's with us. But he's with us in a different way when we're together. We are not that familiar with that space. Our individualism rules so much that our American church tends to project a solo image usually that of the leadership, and, and that gathers similar people. And it, it, it's, it's like we're a corporately gathering to validate one particular kind of person, and which forces everyone that enters our midst to culturally commute to talking and walking and dressing and thinking and looking like most of the other people in the room are as individuals. So some of our churches are churches that love it when men only talk. And we don't want, those kind of churches don't want women to ever talk, you know. Some are so predominantly feminine in their affect, they only want to sing, hold me in your arms, Jesus songs, which makes a bunch of us men nervous because cuddling Jesus is not a good image for us. It's not worshipful. It's like, no. Or we want churches to be mostly black or mostly white, or mostly Republican, or mostly Democrats, right? Or mostly business owners, or mostly working class, or mostly couples and families, where we don't have to be around those people who are single and divorced. We just love being with those who are like us. Personal preference. But what if that's missing the whole point of church? What if the whole point of church is to put us in a room with people we would never get in the room with? Because on some level, we belong to each other. And the level at which we belong to each other is the, the Lord's table, the worship of the saints, and that's why we gather. You know, you come to my house when I was a kid, my family of origin, and you walked in there at a Thanksgiving meal, you would think to yourself, why are these people here together? Because we were a crazy family. My mom was Hispanic, which means you shared everything you thought. You know, we weren't Norwegians. You know, we weren't uh, uh, Germans who kind of stuffed everything. I'm not picking on you partic particularly, maybe a little. But we blathered. And so we had, I mean, we had conservatives and we had liberals and we had, I mean, you name it was at, that, at our families. And I'm telling you what, by mid-dinner, we were screaming at each other. You're an idiot! I'm not kidding you. Why are you, my sister would go, you're just fat and ugly! <laughs> you, know, you know, you know you've devolved when it leaves argumentation into just accusation. <laughs> but boy, when we left, we're hugging and loving each other and you'd scratch your head until you realize, oh, they're family. <laughs> See, if, if people come into sanctuary and they don't, if they don't think, why are these people together? It doesn't make any sense. How come there's so many different kinds of people here? If they don't think that, we have too homogenized and gentrified our community. There ought to be a place for everybody in our context. And when we come into liturgy, I think that's one of the reasons he's emphasizing it. It's not about how you respond or react in old ways that you think are individualistically you know, appropriate. But we're coming together in common space. Think of Jesus' crew. Man, what was he thinking? He picked guys like Matthew, who is a 
Traitor. He's collecting taxes for the Romans. And Jesus, the Messiah, is supposed to deliver them from Rome. What was he thinking? And then he calls, uh, 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 what's his name? Simon, who, who is the, is the uh, zealot. You know what zealots did? They killed tax collectors. They assassinated them. Assassinated them. So imagine that. You know, you, you know, hi, this is Matthew. Good. And this is Simon. He's a zealot. Oh, Matthew's watching his book. <laughs> And you got Peter, loudmouth Peter. And then John, who thinks he's the favorite. And they're gathered around. You know, you read the Gospels. Read the Gospels and watch. Every time Jesus isn't standing right next to him, what are they doing? Arguing with each other. Well, who's the greatest among us? Me. You stupid. Look what you believe politically. You're an idiot. It was a riotous situation. And yet Jesus called them together because what if the whole point of Christianity is that God brings people of diversity in the same room? And then when people look around, they go, why does this make sense? And they go, oh, they're together because of him. And we don't just gather because of the, we like the songs. We, just don't, we don't just gather because we personally like the preacher. We don't just gather. The point of the whole deal is that we are somehow found a place where we transcend into, a, into an expression, into an identity that's bigger than us. Let me end with this. I think sometimes we don't hear the prophetic voice because it's something we don't expect. I did not expect God to speak through something like Lent or communion, or these things, because i that's all dead stuff. But it, it's not unlike Elijah, who, when God spoke to him, he said, I'm going to talk to you, Elijah. And Elijah's in front of this cave, and he says, okay. And all of a sudden, there's this tornadic wind. And the Bible says, but God wasn't in that. And then all of a sudden, there's this earthquake. But God wasn't in that. And then all of a sudden there's this raging fire that just crashes all around him and the scripture says God wasn't in that. The thing that's crazy about that is just a few days before, Elijah was standing on the mountain with all the prophets of Baal and and Elijah lifts up his hands and the fire of God fell and completely devoured the sacrifice that was there. God was definitely in the fire. And God had, Elijah, I mean, the, the whirlwind, I mean, these big things were always where God was. But that day, God wasn't in anything big. And then the scripture says, there came this gentle blowing, this little rustling that you could miss. One version says, a still, small voice. And Elijah caught it. In other words, it was so tiny, so less tornadic, less earthquakeish, less fiery. It was so tiny that you could miss it. And the scripture says, Elijah covered his face for God was speaking in that tiny voice. See, I think the prophetic in our generation is tiny. Now, don't misunderstand me. I, I love some of the big box, you know, big music, big old preaching going on in some of these mega churches. I mean, there's lots of them. And I, um, I love... Seeing that, I think God moves in those kinds of contexts. I preach in a church out in Phoenix six or seven times a year. It's six or 7,000 people. Every time we gather together, they've got big lights and big stage and big energy and smoke and stuff. Even though there's no fire, there's smoke. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it's, 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 <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's the glory cloud, I guess. But anyway, it's, it's like I watch all that and I speak in it because I love people. But, but I, I, I promise you, and I'm not saying this to be disparaging because lives are being changed, people are being helped. Um, but I would never attend a church like that. And the reason is, is because I think there's a rustling going on in the bushes. But it's so tiny. And it, some people just aren't interested in it. But I think there's something there. And I'm going after it. And, some, and I'm dragging you with me. If you feel called here, I, I forgive me. But we feel this way. We feel that this is what God is saying. And, and what we've discovered in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, uh, the research that's being done, that most of the churches that are growing, that are these larger churches, and this isn't to put them down, it's just the truth, it's circulating saints. It's just, I think what's happening is a lot of Christians who have been brought up Christian and who want to still stay in the church want to go someplace where it's not boring. 
and where there's a little bit of action and, and it kind of validates them and validates their faith. And so I get why people would want to go to these bigger kinds of contexts. But I'm telling you, when I sit in those contexts, I go, it gets harder to breathe for me. And I miss our little ordinariness and our creeds and our Father and the Lord's table. I miss that stuff because I think that something prophetic is going on. Listen to this last quote. Because I used to think all the time when I sensed that God was doing things that I used to have to tell everybody, write a book, tell them I was an international prophet, see the future, right? And I remember one time in the middle of that stuff, I felt like God said to me, listen, shut up. If this is me, you won't have to tell anybody. You'll just see it. And I have watched that. And so this is one of those things I've said, okay, God, I don't see it. It just seems like it's been a lonely path, but all of a sudden, the last five years, all over the world, people from evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal traditions are saying, do you hear that rustling in those bushes over there? We've been saying the Our Father together. We're singing the doxology. We're coming to the table every week. It's happening everywhere. So much so that there are books being written. I have a quote from one of the books. It's right here. It's D.H. Williams. He wrote, he's an evangelical. Quote, a nerve within contemporary evangelicalism has been hit, and its effects are ushering in enormous potential change. Discussion of the place and the value of great tradition is taking place among pastors and laity in denominations that have normally regarded it as irrelevant or as a hindrance to authentic Christian belief and spirituality. End quote. Something's afoot. Something's stirring. I wish it was more grand and more exciting and would cause thousands to run at us instead of from us. (laughs) But I'm telling you what, all my chips are on this thing. I'm telling you, I believe God is in this. So why am I saying all that? Get ready for Lent. Get ready for Ash Wednesday. Get ready for this journey with God. Get ready to scratch it. Because listen, This is such a still small voice, you can go right by it. And if you don't push into your heart when you come to the table this morning, and you don't say, God, are you here? I want to open my heart to you. If you don't push towards this, I'm telling you, it's not like the old clouds that I experienced that sort of overwhelmed you. This is like a tiny cloud that is curious more than overwhelming. And if you don't move in it, you won't taste it. You'll just be working in Jerusalem while Jesus is weeping over the city. Let's stand. I want to invite those that are participating in helping us serve communion to come forward and uh, musicians come. And let's prepare our hearts. This is common space. You greedy ones can come with your givers, you giving ones. You struggling ones can come with you victorious ones. We'll let... Men and women come up here. Black or white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever you are, it doesn't matter. Native American, you're welcome. Rich, poor. Business leader, out of a job. You're welcome here. This is common space for us. And as we come, we are one together. Because who we are at this moment is us. Not me or you. Now, we can fight about stuff afterwards. When we get out of this space, I'm going to try to talk you into seeing things politically the way I see them because I see them better than you do. And you may have a certain moral framework that I think is abhorrent. And I'll get in your face and say, stop living with someone you're not married to or, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, I can get in your face all day long about that stuff. But in this moment, not about that. This is a moment where everybody can come that has an open heart to God. This is the moment where we're saying, there is no me, it's just us. And letting that space form you will change you. He is with us here in a way he's not with us when we're by ourselves. So come to the table with an open heart and realize as you pick up that bread in some mystical way, you're touching Jesus. That somehow he's coming here present. That this bread and this cup has more power in it if you found the garment 
that the woman touched, the power came from it and the woman was healed. I guarantee you, if I had that actual garment, we'd have people lined up for hundreds of miles just to get near it and maybe touch it. But I'm telling you, something greater than the garment is here. His presence is going to come into this bread. And his presence is going to come into this cup. So we can say that in some way, he returns to the earth this morning. It's a mini return. But I can say to you, in just a moment, we'll be able to say to you, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you can come and taste of eternal life. That's what this is about. Say, I don't get it. Isn't that cool? (laughs) We don't get it. But we get in on it. So I want you to lift up the bread. The night that he was betrayed, the scripture says that he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. So Lord God, now by faith, as a people, we believe that. We ask you, Lord Jesus, to inhabit the bread and let it become for us the body of Christ. And so we say, welcome, Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way, he'd lift up the cup, lift up the cup if you would. He said, this is my, the cup in my blood, the cup of the new and the everlasting covenant. Somehow, Jesus, you take this grapes that we've taken from the earth and creation. And it's the work of human hands and we bring it to you as a gift. Somehow you, Lord Jesus Christ, enter it. And it becomes for us the blood of Christ. And so we say to you, Lord Jesus Christ, we welcome you. Welcome. Why don't you lift up both the cup and the blood and, and the bread once more? And let me say to you, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <laughs> so come and receive and partake. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.